0: There he goes, one of God's own prototypes. A high powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. Welcome to episode 109 of the Digital Freemason Podcast for the week of July 20th, 2009. I'm Host Scott, and I'll be taking us along on our excellent adventures through the world of short Masonic educational papers. As always, this and all other papers are available at our website, www.thedigitalfreemason.com. I encourage you to swing by and check this and all others out. So this episode is a little bit of something a little bit later for summertime. I've always been a big fan of Mark Twain, and here over the last year or so have been digging into a lot of his short stories. And I think back to the Masons of many years ago who were speculative and spent their times debating many things besides just Freemasonry and specifically as to whether or not God existed, God didn't exist, what man's role was on this planet, along as with all other esoteric type things that caught their attention and their discussionary points. So this one is actually comes from Mark Twain, and I think it was written just about the turn of the uh, 20th century, around 1903. And so it has some talk as to whether man was created and the planet was created for man, or how all that sort of panned out. So he takes a regular Mark Twain tongue-in-cheek approach to evolutionary versus Christianary approach to the world being made for man. Queen gives a long list of examples of how each organism, in its time, would have been utterly convinced that it was what everything before them had been created for. But they were all wrong. They were obviously all stepping stones on their way to man. It was foreseen that man would have to have the oyster. Therefore the first preparation was made for the oyster. But very well you cannot make an oyster out of a whole cloth. So you must make the oyster's ancestor first. And this is not done in a day. You must make a variety of invertebrates to start with. Bellamites, Trilobites, Jubilobites, and Mychilokites, and that sort of fry, and put them in the primary sea and wait for them to see what happens. Some will be disappointments. The Bellamites and the Ammonites and such, they will be failures. They will die out and become extinct. In the course of the 19 million years covered by this experiment, but all is not lost, for the Amalekites will fetch that homestake. They will develop gradually into Endocrites, Stalactites, and Blatherskites. And the one and other of the, the mighty ages creep on into the Arcanian and the Precambrian periods, and they pile their lofty crags into the primordial seas. And at last the grand stage in that preparation for the world of man stands completed. The oyster is done. An oyster has hardly any more reasoning power than a scientist has. And so, reasonably certain, that one jumped to the conclusion that the nineteen million years was a preparation for him. But that would just be like an oyster, which is the most conceited animal that there is, except for man. And anyway, this one could not know that at this early age, that he was only an incident in a scheme, and that there was something more to the scheme yet to come. The oyster being achieved, the next thing, next thing was to arrange for a preparation for the world for man, was fish, fish and coal to fry it. So the old Silurian seas were opened up to breed the fish in, and at the same time the great work of building the old red sandstone mountains 80,000 feet high for cold storage of their fossils it begun. This latter was indispensable, for there would be no end of failures, again, no end of extinctions, millions of them, and it would be cheaper and less trouble to can them in the rocks than keep tally of them in a book. One does not build the coal beds at 80,000 feet of perpendicular old red sandstone in a brief time. No, it took 20 million years. In the first place, a coal bed is a slow and troublesome and tiresome thing to construct. You have to grow prodigious forests of trees, ferns, reeds, and calamites, and such things in a marshy region. Then you have to stick them out of sight and let them rot. Then you have to turn the strains on them, so as to bury them under several feet of sediment. The sediment must have time to harden and turn into rock. Next, you grow another forest on top of that. Then you sink it, put another layer of sediment on and harden it. Then more forest, more rock, layer upon layer, three miles deep. Ah, indeed, it is a sickening slow job to build the coal measure and do it right. So the millions of years dragged on, and in the meantime, the fish culture is lazing along and is frazzling out in a way that would make a person tired. You have to have to develop 10,000 kind of fish from the oyster, and come to look, you have to raise nothing but fossils, nothing but extinctions. There is nothing left alive in the progressive but a ganoid or two, and perhaps half a dozen asteroids, that even a cat wouldn't eat such a thing. Still, it is no great matter. There is still plenty of time yet, and they will be developing to something tasty before man is ready for them. Even a ganoid can be depended on for that, when he is not going to be called on for another 60 million years. The Paleozoic time limit having been reached, it was necessary to begin the next stage in the preparation of the world for man, by opening up the Mesozoic age and instituting some reptiles. For man would need reptiles, not to eat, but to develop himself from. This being the most important detail of the scheme, a spacious liberty of time was set apart for it, 30 million years. What wonders followed, from the time of the ganoids and the asteroids and the alkaloids, were developed by slowly and steadily and painstaking culture of these stupendous saurians that used to prowl these steamy worlds in those remote ages, with their long, snaky necks reared 40 feet in the air and 60 feet of body and tail racing and thrashing thereafter. All gone and now, alas, all except for the little handful of Arkansasians left stranded and lonely with us here upon this far-flung verge of fringe of time. Yes, it took thirty million years and twenty million reptiles to get one that would stick long enough to develop into something else and let that scheme proceed to the next step. Then the pterodactyl burst upon the world with all his impressive solemnity and grandeur, and all nature recognized that this Cenozoic threshold was crossed, and the new period opened for business. The new stage begun in the preparation of the globe for man. It may be that the pterodactyl thought that the thirty million years had been intended as a preparation for himself, for there is nothing too foolish about a pterodactyl to imagine. But he was in error. The preparation was for man. Without a doubt, the pterodactyl attracted great attention, and for even the least observant could see that this was a making of a bird in him. And so it turned out, and also a making of a mammal, in time. One thing we would say to his credit, that in the matter of picturesqueness, he was the triumph of the period. He wore wings and had teeth, and he was such a staunchy, starchy and wonderful mixture altogether, a kind of long-distance primatory symptom of Kipling's marion. He isn't one o'er regular line, nor is he one of the crew. He's a kind o' Ghibli Hermaphrodite, soldier and sailor, too. From the time onward... For nearly another thirty million years, the preparation moved briskly. From the pterodactyl was developed the bird, from the bird the kangaroo, from the kangaroo and the other marsupials, and from these the mastodons, the megathons, the giant sloth, the Irish elk, and all that crowd that you make useful to fi- that you find fossils. And then came the first great ice sheet, and they all retreated before it and crossed over the bridge of the Bering Straits, and wandered around all over Europe and Asia, and died all except a very few, to carry on the preparation with. Six glacial periods, with two million years in between each period, chase the poor orphans up and down and around the earth, from the weather to weather, from tropical swelter of the poles to the arctic frost of the equator, and back again, and to and fro, they never knowing what kind of weather was going to turn up next. And if ever they settled down anywhere, where the whole continent suddenly would, st- would sink underneath them without the least notice, and they had to trade places with the fishes and scramble off to where the seas had been, and scarcely a dry rag on them. And when there was nothing else, that doing a volcano would let go and fire them out from where they had been allocated. They led this unsettled and irritating life for 25 million years, half the time afloat, half the time aground, and always wondering what it was all for. They, never suspecting, of course, that this was in preparation for man, and had to be done just so, or it wouldn't be a proper and harmonious place for him when he arrived. And at last came the monkey. Anyone could see the man wasn't far off now. And in truth, it was so. The monkey went on developing for close to five million years and then turned into man to all appearances. Such is the history of it. Man has been here 32,000 years. That it took a hundred million years to prepare the world for him is proof that it is what it was done for. I suppose it is? I don't know. If the Eiffel Tower were now representing the world's age, The skin of paint on the pinnacle knob at its summit would represent the man's chair of this age, and anybody would perceive that the skin was what the tower was built for. I reckon they would. I don't know. This piece was written about the time that Alfred Russell Wallace proposed the theory of natural selection, which in turn prompted Charles Darwin to publish his own theory. So at that point it was sort of all hands on deck for uh, proving of the evolutionary history, I guess, of mankind, if, uh, if you follow that. I throw all this out as yet one other one of those things to discuss around and to take around and note that it doesn't always have to be serious when you're talking about evolution versus creationism and all those sort of things. And just like all things in Freemasonry, it doesn't always need to be that serious. Case in point, the Shriners, I guess, would be a good adage of that. And just want to say thank you very much for listening and taking time out and waiting for me to show up after a six week hiatus. And now that I got uh, some equipment upgrades, I hope that things go along a lot better and that this is sounding a lot better at your end. And that's due in part to some of the donations that have come in from the website at the, the, the digitalfreemason.com. You can always donate, any amount is appreciated, and I throw it all towards the hosting of the website, and getting little pieces of equipment like a decent microphone so that I don't hurt your ears as much. So until next time, I've been your host, Scott, and I've enjoyed our time together. You can always email me at podcast at com. And until the next time, be sure to keep the shiny side up.